Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Dr. Sarah Berry. Sarah is a reader and researcher at King's College London, looking at how diet influences cardiovascular disease risk. And today, we are focusing on personalized nutrition and how the microbiome plays a critical role in our individual responses to food. So, without further ado, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben, for having me. It is such a pleasure to have you on. I'm really good to chat to you again. Yeah, I think it's probably been how many years since uh, I was one side of the lecture theatre and you were the other side? Yeah, well, I'm still learning from you now, Sarah. So <laughs> it's a constant thing. But yeah, I think six or seven now. Um, Gosh, time flies. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> um, so now you seem to have been extremely busy over the last few years and always have been. Uh, what big projects have you been working on recently? And we're going to dive into the predict, predict studies. I know that. Yep. So I've been continuing my program of research at King's looking at uh, food structure. So fat structure, food matrix structure, and how it impacts responses to food um, and particularly postprandial responses, which I'm sure we'll pick up on in a bit. Alongside that, I've been the lead nutritional researcher on the PREDICT program of research, which mm -hmm. is this world's largest program of personalized nutrition research, which I'm sure as well we're going to pick up on and delve a bit more deeply into. Well, let's dive into that straight away. <laughs> so you've been yeah. working on the PREDICT studies, hugely fascinating area of research. Um, many people might be familiar, familiar with it, but if not, I will link to the studies below in the show notes. Um, yeah. And that's looking at individual responses to food um, based on a number of different factors, but mainly the microbiome from what I understand. Uh, maybe you can outline firstly how these studies came about. Yeah, so the, for anyone that's not familiar with the PREDICT program, it's the world's largest personalized nutrition program. It's a whole series of studies to unravel how we as individuals respond to different foods and what determines the differences in how we respond to food. You know, capitalizing on all kind of the, the new landscape that we see ourselves in in nutritional research so citizen science high precision analysis and latest technologies and the reason that we started the predict program is because we were really starting to recognize not just in nutritional research but in all medical research just how complex we are as individuals and how complex food is and therefore how variable different people's responses to food are and that really we need to be thinking of moving beyond this one size fits all approach to ensure that we can maximize health for everyone. And, you know, I think a way to put this into context a little bit is imagine the thousands of different biological pathways that each and every one of us have that are slightly different. So mine is slightly different to yours, for example, Ben. Mm -hmm. Imagine the thousands of different chemicals that we now know are in different foods. You know, food isn't just fat, carbohydrate, protein, fiber. It has thousands of chemicals and chemicals that we call like non-nutritive bioactives that all have these wonderful properties. So throw together the complexity of, you know, yours and mine, thousands of different biochemical, biological pathways that differ, the thousands of chemicals in food. Put these together and it's apparent that actually how you respond to a food versus how I respond to a food is going to be really different. And, you know, previously in nutritional research, it was difficult to disentangle these differences in how each and every one of us responds to food because traditionally in nutritional research, we've relied on either quite large scale studies, but low precision. So what we call epidemiological studies, mm -hmm. or we've relied on very high precision, but very small scale studies. So what, like randomized controlled trials, for example. But we're at this really exciting transition, I think, in nutrition research and all scientific research that we can actually now collect big data, so data at scale, at high precision, and at high breadth. And that's exactly what we need for precision nutrition and for us to be able to start to disentangle this complexity. And so we were able to undertake this research given that we had the opportunity now to actually have the tools to do this. And this is capitalizing on things like wearable technologies. So most people you see you know, out and about, they have an Apple Watch 
watch or a Fitbit. We can capitalize on um, wearable clinical devices like continuous glucose monitors, uh, remote testing like you know genetic remote testing, uh, send your stool sample off to a company and they'll analyze your microbiome. And importantly, we can capitalize as well on what we call citizen science. So a large proportion of people want to know more about how healthy they are, um, what they can do to make themselves healthier, how they can use nutrition, food and diet to improve their health. And so what's been really exciting is we've been able to capitalize on all of these new technologies on people's interest in food to be able to undertake what's needed to be done to achieve this whole uh, area of precision nutrition, which is scale, uh, depth, um, breadth and high precision. So there were two things I just want to unpick very, very quickly. One, you mentioned microbiome testing. Now, this is something which I th find like quite a contentious subject because there's different ways to test the microbiome. And if you're only testing the bacteria within the microbiome, like 16S sequencing, or if you're looking at um, the fungal pathogens as well. Um, so I was just wondering what exactly you're looking at when you're testing the microbiome and how that relates to how people respond to certain foods as well. So in the PREDICT studies, we're using uh, state-of-the-art metagenomic sequencing. So that enables us to look at the different microbes and also their functionality, which is really important. So it's really taking the traditional uh, 16S sequencing to the next level, and it gives us a lot bigger picture. So it's like putting kind of the fine-tune button on your TV, so really enabling us to look at what the bacteria is doing as well as what bacteria we have there. Awesome. So when you're saying what it's doing, do you mean like the kind of substrates that it's producing or utilizing, I should say, or producing for the, for the gut epithelia to utilize? Um, so we would measure that using different techniques. Is there particular bacteria which you're like very much focused on? Like I know there was, um, I'll give you an example because I was recently came across a slew of papers looking at Akkermansia and how the, um, the amount of that is inversely, inversely uh, associated with obesity and weight gain. And I found that fascinating. Obviously this is only like one bacteria because Akkermansia is also very high in people with autoimmune conditions like people with MS. So it's not good in certain circumstances. But what I found really mm -hmm. cool is that you can actually increase acomancia or the proportion of acomancia within your gut microbiome by um, eating foods um, called macromolecular procyanidins or anthocyanidins that you find in apple skins or red polyphenols and things of that nature. So I'm wondering if you're looking at targeted, it's a roundabout way of saying, I'm wondering if you're looking at targeted bacteria to produce a certain response. So I'm sorry, that is the wind is howling. So I do apologize. Um, so we've actually want uh, endeavor to look across the broadest uh, section of the microbiome as possible, which is why we've used the metagenomic sequencing, which means that we've been able to sequence, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of different bacteria. And this is so that we can also look at bacteria that might not have previously been sequenced using mm. other techniques and might not have therefore be previously been shown to be associated with different health outcomes. And what we did with our research is it, when specifically related to the microbiome, we first looked at which um, foods, nutrients and dietary indices, as well as different health outcomes were associated with the microbiome. So which um, dietary factors and which health factors have strong associations overall with microbiome com composition. And then what we did is we kind of drilled down to look at the individual bacteria. Mm -hmm. And so what we did is we then looked at um, individual, again, foods, nutrients, food groups, um, and uh, food indices, so food scores. And we looked at how they were associated with they, all the different kinds of bacteria. And we were also able to do the same with different health outcomes from blood pressure to cardiovascular disease risk to postprandial responses to um, inflammatory responses. Mm. And what we were able to develop from this is what we call a microbiome signature. So we found a common number of microbes that were associated with healthy diet and healthy uh, health outcomes and a number of bacteria that are associated with 
a less favorable diet um, and less favorable health outcomes. So we developed this kind of microbiome uh, signature that we found for the first time was associated with both diet and health outcomes. Now, this is um, a signature that's uh, by association with these health outcomes. So we're not looking in at causality in the way that you talked about how some foods can actually result in uh, eliciting a change in the specific bacteria. Mm -hmm. That's the next stage now for us is to start to look at how can we then manipulate dietary intakes to manipulate the microbiome to then go on to actually elicit changes in these health outcomes. Because that is like so fascinating, in my opinion. I got really uh, intrigued in, uh, or fascinated by this area because I was looking at, I, I was, it was a documentary and I think it was that, um, what are they called? I'm going to have to cut this if I forget, forget his name. The Twin Doctors, and they always do documentaries in this area. Yeah, Van yeah. someone. Yeah, Van. Zan and Van. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I, I'll remember it in, in a second. And um they were doing uh, talking about uh, microbial fecal transplants. Yeah. And it was interesting because the depending on the population, so if you had a lean person's microbiota transferred over to someone who was overweight, they would lose weight, right? And th this was replicable even in animals and a, a small number of humans which they which they did this on. And I was like this has got to be the next level. And if you can manipulate the microbiota or the microbiome with targeted nutrients um, and phytochemicals and things of that nature, or even probiotics, I mean, this will obviously be much further down the line. I mean, it's got to be the next generation of nutrition. Yeah, I think it's really exciting. I think there's a couple of points to pick up on that. And I think one of them is that although we're still uh, big steps away from showing how we can change the microbiome through diet, oh, yeah. what we do know is it is possible to change it. And so what's been really interesting with the PREDICT research is for our PREDICT 1 study, we had about 700 twins in the study because we recruited from the Twins UK cohort. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were able to look at how much of our microbiome is predetermined by our genes and how much therefore is not and potentially modifiable. And if we put it into the context of how much of our own genes are, 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 um, are shared amongst identical twins um, and how much are shared between unrelated individuals, we know that 99% of our DNA is shared between unrelated individuals. So you and I have 99% of our DNA is gonna be the same. Mm -hmm. When we looked at the microbiome DNA, what we found is that for unrelated individuals, they shared 30% of the microbiome DNA. Yeah, drastically different. But identical twins, they shared 34%. So they only shared an extra 4%. And I think this is really exciting because especially as nutritional scientists, we're always looking at ways, what can we modify? Is it, you know, is there going to be efficacy in doing this? And so it shows that actually the microbiome isn't all predetermined by our genes. And we've seen this with all of the other uh, health measures, actually, that we've measured as part of PREDICT, which you know, we can go on to discuss. But it's really exciting because it shows, OK, it's not all predetermined by genes. Mm -hmm. We do have the power to control it. And we know that diet potentially is one of the really key factors that we can modify uh, to change it. Yeah, I mean, this is this is hugely fascinating. I actually just spoke uh, just before this call with a um, nutrigenomics nutri researcher at Rutgers University called Dr. Yehail Joff. And um, I, I probably butchered her name. Sorry, Yehail. Um, <laughs> so, but she, she's absolutely brilliant. And we got into the conversation of looking at the AMY1 gene in particular and how that gene... Yeah. Uh, the number of copies of that gene is um, associated with, oh no, not associated with, you can look at, there's more copies in certain locations across the globe, for example, Southeast Asia or um, Africa. They seem to have more AMY1 genes and they're more able to not only digest carbohydrates because the AMY1 gene codes for amylase, which is, helps to digest carbohydrates, but also assimilate, assimilate these carbohydrates better than we can with maybe less AMY1 genes. Um, which I found fascinating, but that is genetics. Now I am wondering how much the microbiome influences that in particular, which is carbohydrate metabolism. And I know this is a, a long-winded question. I will ask you a question in a second. But because polyphenols 
seem to have an interplay with carbohydrate metabolism. And I'm wondering whether the differences in postprandial glycemia is actually related to the microbiota interacting with the polyphenols rather than the carbohydrate load itself. So we mentioned identical twins, for example, they can spike their blood glucose with the same food. So if they're given an orange, for example, one might spike it quite high um, and the other one, not so much. But I'm wondering whether because their microbiome is so different, the interplay between the polyphenols might be having a more significant effect than we think it does. Um, What do you think about that? (laughs) Did did I I articulate that? Well, I don't know. (laughs) No, perfectly. I think it's a really good point. And I, I don't have the expertise in the interplay between microbiome and polyphenols. There's an excellent researcher at King's, um, Anna Rodriguez Matus, that's uh, who, who's actively researching that um, as we speak. I think that what our work has shown is that there are many determinants of our responses to food. So if we're talking specifically in the context of what you've just mentioned, postprandial glycemia, what we've been able to see is that there's multiple interrelated determinants mm-hmm. and that they are interrelated. And this is what's made the PREDICT studies so special, that previous research is focused on single exposures, single outcomes, but we've looked at all of the exposures uh, that are possible within the study um, and multiple outcomes. And so we've been able to tease apart how much of our glycemic response, for example, is due to genetics, how much is due to microbiome, how much is due to meal context and all these other factors. And we've been able to start to also look at the interaction. And what we find, as you mentioned earlier, is that actually genetics isn't a major contributor. So if we look at our glycemic responses, genetics does play a contribution, but it plays a relatively small contribution compared to all of these different factors, Mm -hmm. one of which is the microbiome. But an important point is it might interact with the microbiome. Like you say, the microbiome might also be um, having the synergistic effect as we see with polyphenols. Um, and maybe that's one of the ways that the microbiome impacts to uh, attenuate the glycemic response. It's not something we've specifically looked at yet in our research. We have a gold mine of data and these are all the kind of questions that we hope to go on to explore together with experts in the field in all of these very specific areas. Perfect. Thank you for clarifying that. So I'm interested in what kind of variation are we looking at between individuals and their response to certain foods? Um, Because I know you tested a couple. Are we looking at like a four times um, variation in terms of the glycemic response or? So one of the aims of the PREDICT program of research is to look at how much variability there is between individuals. So when we first started chatting, I talked to you a little bit about how we're starting to realise there is loads of variability, that everything's Mm -hmm. very complicated. But we've not been very good at actually quantifying this before because you need large numbers. You need a diverse population. You need many different age groups, ethnicities, sexes, etc. to be able to really quantify it at a population level to understand just how much variability there is in responses. And so this was one of the the kind of key aims to start off with PREDICT, as well as going on to look at what's determining that variability. And what we found is that if we talk again in the context of postprandial glycemia, so the increase in blood sugar, you know, in that kind of two two to three hours after consuming carbohydrate-rich foods, you have up to a tenfold difference in responses between foods. So my response to exactly the same food that you eat might be 10 times higher. Right, 10 times. Yeah, we see it's really large. And we see the same with postprandial lipemia. And postprandial lipemia is the increase in circulating blood fat after consuming a fat-containing meal. And this is something that we focus particularly on with the PREDICT studies, these postprandial responses. And we see a similar level of variability in these uh, short term, which are uh, what we call postprandial responses, in many other circulating metabolites. So in inflammation, for example, and we have a paper just coming out in American Journal of Clinical Nutrition looking at just how variable people's postprandial, so short-term changes after consuming foods, is in, in circulating inflammatory markers. And we see this across a whole host of different um, metabolites. Right. Let's dive into... Um 
lipemia and then talking about inflammatory metabolites because lipemia is an interesting one. I think people understand why high blood glucose and high insulin levels might cause harm, but not many people understand why lipemia has a potential to cause harm. So what are the real reasons why fats in the blood after a meal might be deleterious to your health? Um, so something that I've been particularly interested throughout my career, but we've been also particularly focused on in the PREDICT program research are postprandial responses. And by postprandial, we mean uh, what's happening immediately after you've consumed a food. And this is really important because typically people are asked to measure um, fasting responses to a dietary intervention or um, you know, to some sort of change in their diet. Or you might be asked when you go to the doctor, can you come in fasted so I can measure your blood cholesterol fasted? But actually what happens is, is after we consume food, you have these immediate short-term, these postprandial changes in circulating uh, glucose, which comes from the carbohydrate in the meal, and circulating triglycerides, which comes from the fat in the morning. Mm -hmm. And what happens is you have a peak in the uh, circulating glucose levels around 30 minutes, returning to baseline around two hours, and we call this the postprandial glycemic response. And you have an increase in circulating triglyceride levels from the fat in the meal, peaking around four hours, returning to baseline around eight hours. And that's what we call the postprandial lipemic response. And if you imagine that that happens every time you eat a mixed meal, and most of us eat mixed meals, we don't eat rarely just carb meals, unless you've got jelly beans at home, um, or, you know, just fat containing meals. So imagine you're consuming, you know, two to three main meals a day, two to three snacks a day, you're spending most of your day in this state of flux with these spikes in glucose, these prolonged elevations in triglycerides in the blood. And the reason this is important is because we know that these spikes in glucose and these elevations in triglycerides in the blood, they actually elicit a whole cascade of downstream effects. And so if we think specifically about circulating triglycerides, mm -hmm. what happens is, is they initiate an oxidative and an inflammatory response. You also get remodeling of uh, lipoproteins, which are these very specialized particles in which blood fats and cholesterol circulate in our blood. And you also have activation of the hemostatic system, so related to blood clotting. And so whilst an elevation in glycemia and lipemia after a meal is a normal metabolic response to consuming that meal, and so I'm not saying that we should all have no elevation ever in our glucose or triglycerides, what happens is, is if it's exaggerated and sustained over a long period of time, you increase the uh, circulation of these inflammatory oxidative hemostatic factors in that acute phase postprandially. You increase this lipoprotein remodeling to be detrimental and to um, contribute to atherosclerosis, for example. And we now know from large epidemiological studies that people that have a higher postprandial lipemia have higher levels of cardiovascular disease risk. And we now know that it's an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And there's a lot of mechanistic studies also looking at why that's happening. And that's through the mechanisms that I've just described. And so something I've always been interested in, in my research career and also with the PREDICT studies is trying to look at these acute responses because it's actually these acute responses that underpin many of the chronic responses uh, you know, induced by diet. Okay, that's fascinating. One thing that you said there was remodeling lipoproteins. Like we talk about LDL and HDL cholesterol, and there's been like a, a fascination around the, the size of the LDL particle with the small dense LDL being potentially the most athogenic. Is that what you were talking about when you talk about remodeling? Yeah, so... Lipoproteins are particles that carry our blood lipids. Um, so the lipids like cholesterol, triglycerides, and phospholipids mm -hmm. around our blood. What we know is that the composition and the size of those particles, as well as the numbers, is really important in terms of cardiometabolic and cardiovascular disease. Typically, we use the term HDL, LDL, um, uh, total cholesterol, and some of you might have heard of, or you might have heard of VLDL as well. And what we know is that small, dense LDL that are enriched with triglycerides are more atherogenic than the larger, more buoyant LDL that are enriched with cholesterol. 
We also know again for HDL, the same applies. So the tag enriched HDL um, are less good for you than the big cholesterol enriched HDL. And what happens during the postprandial phase is you get movement between these different particles. So when you consume a fat containing meal, the fat from the meal circulates in the blood in a specialized particle called a chylomicron. And what happens is, is over a prolonged period of time, if your chylomicrons remain elevated, you get transfer of triglycerides from your chylomicrons to your HDL, to your LDL, which generates these very small tag-enriched particles, which we know are more atherogenic. And that's what we mean by this postprandial remodeling of lipoproteins. And so you get the generation of something, which I know it's a bit of a mouthful, but we call the atherogenic lipoprotein phenotype. And that's the generation of these small, dense LDL and HDL particles. Right. Okay. So with the remodeling, is that um, variable not only between individuals, but between different fatty acids profiles that are, have been eaten? Yeah, so what our research shows is that it's different depending on the type of fat you're consuming. Yeah, that's the better way just, of putting it. <laughs> well, I, I think what you said was actually more specific. So when we talk about type of fat, we can talk about the fatty acid composition, but we can also talk about the structure of the fat. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into the complexities of that now, because okay. as much as I love it, and it's been a topic of my research for many years, um, I realize it's quite specialist. But the fatty acid composition, by that we mean saturated mono polyunsaturated fatty acid, but also the way it's structured within the fat. So whether it has like high melting point, low melting point, um, so whether it's kind of a hard or a liquid structure, will also determine some of this postprandial lipoprotein remodeling. Mm. But what we found with our PREDICT studies is where we give people identical meals, so we're taking away any of the noise from differences in fatty acids or, or fat structure, where we give them identical test meals containing identical fat, we still see a huge variability in this lipoprotein remodeling. Right. And again, that's what's interesting. And again, that's what points out to us the need to think at a more individual level of strategies that we can implement to improve health um, you know, for that particular individual. It would be really interesting because I'm just thinking, because I, I spoke to you before this conversation, it's on my mind that um, there are certain genes like FADS1 and FADS2, which interact with how we how we digest fats and how we utilize them in the body. And I'm wondering if, well, it would be really interesting to look at the individuals which are having these high responses to lipemia and the kind of SNPs that they have within these genes. Um, but yeah, that's more of a comment than it is a question. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting. It's something we did look at because we have um, our Twins UK cohort yeah. is... Um, I should say, I have interviewed the Mac Twins, by the way. So like, oh, they've, they've spoken about this before. <laughs> okay, and they've done our predict study. Yeah. Um, but so we have been able to look at it and we actually have a paper published that came out in last July in Nature Medicine where we reported uh, the contribution of different SNPs to the postprandial lipemic response. Um, and we've also been able to look using traditional um, heritability modeling, so kind of classical twin mm -hmm. uh, methods at the contribution of genetics uh, versus environment and common upbringing on lipemic responses. And for lipemia, we find that it actually contributes less than 5%. So your wow. genetic makeup is less okay. than 5%. We do find that there are some specific SNPs, mm -hmm. and please don't ask me which ones, um, <laughs> but we do find that there are some specific SNPs that are associated with it. But overall, the impact of genetics on lipemia is minimal compared to the impact that it has on glycemia. Right. Okay. That's fascinating. Cool. Thank you very much for, for clearing that up. Um, what do you think has been the most exciting finding that, you, that has come out of the PREDICT studies so far? Do I have to just pick one? Or you could, if you say them all, that's not, that's not, that's not <laughs> looking at an exciting finding. But what to you do you think? Or maybe one of the most unexpected okay. findings. Okay. What I think is the most exciting finding, which I'm cheating because it encompasses a few, so, <laughs> um, is that um, we have been able to see for the first time 
the relative importance of the interrelated factors that determine our responses to food. And the finding from that, if you want me to say one finding, is that how we eat, who we are, and what we eat all play a really important role. Okay. Yeah. And I can expand on that if you'd like. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, sure. I'm thinking how we, I'm thinking like environment, whether we're sitting, standing, or how much we chew is, uh, is what was going on in my mind. But please go on. Um, so, so, but let's start with the simple. So, who we are is our age, our sex, our basic kind of biochemical mm-hmm. um, profile. What we eat is the nutrients, the foods, and the different foods within the meal, so the makeup of the meal. How we eat encompasses factors like sleep. How much sleep did we have the night before? Uh, the sequent meal ordering. What did you have for breakfast? How does that impact your, your response at lunch? Yeah. The time of day. So what are your responses like at lunchtime compared to the morning? Um, how much exercise you did, when you did the exercise, the intensity of the exercise, the duration of the exercise. These are all factors that actually play a really important role alongside what we eat and who you are in determining your response. And previous research has looked at lots of these factors, but looked at them in isolation. So there's been lots of work looking at time of day, but they've looked just at how, if you alter the time of day, does it affect a single output? Mm. And I think this is why I find this the most exciting finding of the PREDICT studies, is we've been able to look at the interrelated um, and integrated response. So we've been able to see that it is the how, who, and what that's actually really important to consider together. And I think it's also really powerful, actually, while I'm thinking about it, that from a a, a practical point of view, nobody really wants to be told you can't eat that or you can't do it this way. And what our findings uh, have shown is that there's no single factor that is the answer to everything. You know, there's no kind of silver bullet. There's no single thing that you should do and shouldn't do. And so actually it means that for each individual, we can advise them, okay, for you as an individual, these are the different things that will affect your responses to food. If you still want to eat that particular food, we're not saying don't eat it, although we can give you a a healthy alternative. If if it's easier for you, you can just change the time of day that you're eating it, or you can change how much exercise you do before eating it. Mm -hmm. Not that that's going to totally mitigate you having 10 ice creams for breakfast. So I'm not saying that, but... (laughs) But I'm saying, you know, there's many different factors that we can modify and we can do it to suit ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, because you just food, food is such an important part of our social, cultural, emotional makeup. And being denied things is not the way I think ever to improve health. And I think that's what's been really exciting is that we can change these other factors as well. Yeah, really cool. Because I came across the idea of like circadian rhythmicity for certain mm-hmm. organs um, yep. and this I guess relates more to do with a uh, pancreatic secretion of insulin is this something which you found like based on the time of day that you eat certain carbohydrates depends on your response to that food in terms of uh, postprandial glycemia yep so time of day is something we've been really interested in and it's you know big exploding area in terms of there's been lots of work in the past looking at glycemic responses like you say There's also emerging evidence that our microbiome also might have its own circadian rhythm, which is super exciting. (laughs) Um, But what we've done is we've been looking at how when you consume your meal, and this is by giving identical meals at different times of the day, how that impacts your postprandial glycemic response. And we find in line with what's been published before, if you consume your carbs later in the day, you have a higher glycemic response than if you have them in the morning. That's nothing new. But because we have such a breadth of the population in our study, you know, in such large numbers, we've been able to now start to look at how is this different between individuals? And so to give you a very simple example of the kind of findings that we've got from this is that we've separated out people according to their age group. So we've looked at people, you know, 20 to 30, 30 to 40 year old, et cetera, et cetera. And what we find is that for people under the age of 60, time of day does seem to have a big impact. So for you and me under 60, if we consume our carbs in the morning, we have a significantly lower glycemic response than if we consume them in the afternoon. 
once you get to 60, we find that that's really diminished that difference. So for those that are above 60, consuming carbs in the morning or consuming them in the afternoon doesn't have such a big impact on the differences in the glycemic response. And that could be because their metabolic control has, it is just reduced anyway with aging. So they have poorer metabolic control regardless of the time of day. So this circadian um, difference that you talked about in insulin is kind of dampened down. Um, now, that, that's using what we call a stratified approach. So you've probably heard of stratified medicine or stratified nutrition. So that's using an approach of where we look stratified according to age brackets. Yeah. Within that, there is still huge variability within individuals. But I think this is where it's really exciting that we can move beyond, you know, telling everyone of every age group, okay, front end your carbs because it's worse in the afternoon. For some people that might not be the case. Yeah, I, I actually, um, just from what you've just said, I used to practice carb backloading. So essentially you wouldn't have any carbohydrates in the morning. So for the listeners, like your your fat cells and your muscle cells are equally um, insulin sensitive in the morning. And as you progress throughout the day, both cells become less insulin sensitive effectively. Um, and you produce less insulin later in the day. But if you train, you get GLUT4 translocation based if you resistance train. So you mm -hmm. can actually absorb more carbohydrates after that training session. So I used to train at 5 p.m. and then eat my carbohydrates at night. And then that used to work very well for me. And I don't know why, but I seemed, like when I measured it, to consume 300, 400 calories more than I could get away with otherwise. And I don't know what kind of compensatory mechanism there is. Maybe I just wasn't digesting it all at that time. Um, but that was like a hack, like a biological hack, which I was using. I'm not sure, because I didn't have a CGM or measure my postprandial blood glucose, but it'd be interesting to see how that affected essentially my, my glycemia after a meal. Yeah, this is something we're uh, doing as part of our PREDICT3 study uh, that we have um, ongoing in the States at the moment, together with one of our collaborators, Javier Gonzalez, who's based oh, yeah, at Bath, Bath. University. Yeah. yeah. And he, he does time. amazing work looking at impact of timing of exercise, timing of food intake. And we're going to be looking at how when you exercise versus uh, when you eat and what you eat impacts your metabolic responses to food and also uh, your metabolic health as well. Mm. That'd be fascinating. You've actually reminded me I need to speak to Javier. He does some brilliant work, especially as it, as it relates to like exercise physiology. Um, okay. I had another note, which would be great to ask you um, or ask you a question on, which is the effect of sweetness and yep. their impact on our responses to different foods. Because I realized you did a, one of the predict studies was looking at this. Um, what are the effects of things like the common sweeteners, sucralose, aspartame? Um, are, are, is there an interplay between both of them or do they have different effects on different people? So I'm by no means an expert on this. It is something that we did a sub-study within predict mm -hmm. uh, looking at. Um, we looked at the impact of a sweetener preload. So in the way that you might consume a, a fizzy drink with sweetener and then uh, an hour or half an hour later consume a carb containing meal or a carb containing snack. And we looked at different sweeteners to see what their effect would be on the postprandial glycemic response. We're still analyzing those results. So apologies, I can't tell you what those results are. Okay. From a broader Offline. perspective, <laughs> um, no, I don't, we haven't done them. Okay. We haven't. <laughs> we have so much, seriously, we have so much data, <laughs> I promise you. Um, so from a broader perspective, we know that sweeteners interact with the gut microbiome. There's work by uh, a group in Israel that have looked at this, um, both in humans uh, and, and done quite a lot of work with mice as well, and looking at the impact of giving different sweeteners, how it impacts the microbiome and how that might impact subsequent postprandial responses. So we know that there's a link there and it's something again that we want to explore in more detail and hopefully we'll have the results from this predict sub-study that we did uh, coming out soon. Brilliant. But you can cut that because that we don't have results to share. <laughs> I do have a postdoc looking at it as we speak, but 
Okay, good. So basically what you're saying is I'm going to have to invite you on again. Uh, <laughs> Tell you the results. Yeah, give it a year and we'll have discovered loads more. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cause it, um, another topic or something which I think w- would be really interesting to get your opinion on is that nutrition guidelines at this point seem to be relatively redundant based on what we've just covered. Um, what's your view on that? And do you think they'll change based on your results? So I think we need to take a little step back when we think about nutrition guidelines. Oh, you've, you've, you've gone all, you've gone all oh. um, strict researcher comment. <laughs> Taking it a step the... back. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you were saying something's no, wrong. No, no, no. Okay, sorry. But Go we on. do. I, no, I, I, I think know. we do. We need to take a little bit of a step back to think, okay, you know, the nutrition guidelines, population-based guidelines get a lot of stick and everyone says they don't work. Mm-hmm. Now, something isn't working because the burden of diet-related disease is enormous. So something's not working. And I think the question that we really need to always consider, is it that the guidelines are wrong, i.e. they're not fit for purpose or they're not fit for um, the fact that we all respond so differently? Or is it that we're not following the guidelines? Mm-hmm. And I think that we really need to consider that before, you know, p- people kind of rip apart these population guidelines. We did a really interesting study at King's called Cressida some years ago, where we uh, randomly allocated uh, people to either follow a t- typical UK diet, so what people are typically on average consuming in the UK, or follow the UK government recommended diet. And it was a tightly controlled intervention study. So we knew that they were following each of these diets. And we found that if you followed the UK recommended diet, there was an improvement in health outcomes. There was an improvement in blood lipids, in blood pressure, um, et cetera. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is, I think, is that firstly, many of us aren't following it. But secondly, that within broad healthy eating guidelines, there's massive scope for personalization. So I don't think that just because we talk about a one size fits all approach not working for everyone, I don't think that means that population-based guidelines are redundant at all. I actually think the vast majority of the population-based guidelines are based on sound scientific evidence. But within these, I think there's scope that you can adapt to maximize your own health within those population guidelines. There's certain aspects that I don't agree with, and I do don't agree that we should be um, encouraging any low-fat foods. I don't agree that we should be minimizing our healthy oils or healthy fat intake. And I think that's something that we do need to consider moving a little bit away from in the population guidelines. But I think at the heart of most population guidelines, UK, America, you know, most countries is increasing the consumption of fruits, vegetables, and whole foods. And I think as long as we focus on consuming whole foods, and by that, I don't mean whole grains, I mean foods in their original food matrix, I think you can't go wrong. Yeah, I entirely agree with you there. I'd even stretch that out to say, like, even if you're looking at processed meat, I think the whole form, red meat, for example, is better than the sausages, the bacon, etc., and obviously fruits and vegetables preponderance I, I think are highly beneficial in terms of a plant-based diet um but when people are thinking you know is meat healthy well i'm thinking like what are you talking about there are you talking about a burger from mcdonald's or are you talking about a steak you know i, I don't think you can compare the two definitely and i think the problem isn't necessarily the food itself it's the what else we're eating with it's how we're eating it mm-hmm. um, as well as the whole factors around food processing which we could talk for a whole other hour about yeah. and um, but if you take red meat as an example and you think the way that most red meat is consumed uh, by a certain proportion of the UK or, or the US population is exactly how you say in a white refined bun with high sugar high salt ketchup with highly processed meat and goodness knows what else is added to make that burger. Yes, and chips. If you think how it's consumed in the Mediterranean, in France, for example, Mm. yes, they consume a decent amount of red meat. It's consumed alongside 
green leafy vegetables. And we know that there's a synergistic effect from green leafy vegetables with the red meat that partly negates some of the negative effect that red meat might have on some of our metabolic responses. And so there you have an example of consuming essentially what people might say is the same. Well, they're both red meat, but actually what it's being consumed with in both instances is very different, but also you have difference in the synergy of what it's consumed with as well. And I think that's really important when we talk about foods that we think about the overall dietary pattern and we don't, you know, it's like in nutrition, we know it's outdated to think of just nutrients. We have to move beyond this very reductionist nutrient approach. And we also need to move beyond this single food approach because we're now understanding the importance of this synergy and we also need to, to really focus on the form of the food. And this is something I've been quite passionate about in my research the last 10 years. So thinking about the food matrix and by that we need food structure. So, you know, we've done studies where we've looked at consuming large rolled oats versus quite finely ground oats, mm -hmm. where on the back of pack labeling, they would have identical ingredients, identical nutrient composition, but actually the glycemic response they elicit is totally different. And the same with nuts. If you consume whole almonds mm -hmm. or if you finely ground, grind them, on the back of pack, they'd look exactly the same, same nutrients, same calories, same ingredient, but the metabolic response they induce, so the level of lipemia is totally different. And we've seen that from our own studies, but also how much energy you absorb. You absorb nearly 40% less energy from the whole almonds where the matrix, so the cell walls are intact versus the ground almonds. And so it's really thinking in nutrition of moving beyond that nutrient or just food only, but thinking of the form it's fed in and what it's fed with, I think is really important. Yeah, you make I've such... gone off topic with no, that, no, no, but it's he's... something that <laughs> I'm interested in. <laughs> <laughs> you make such an excellent point. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of devastating to think about because I love peanut butter, Sarah. Oh, that's fine because the particle size... So anyone listening, you can still have your nut butters. Um, the particle size of nuts are so small that you have to so finely grind it in order to break up the cell walls. So what's magical about nuts is they have these really rigid cell walls and encapsulated within these cells. So imagine these little balls that have a really rigid um, you know, exter external surface. And within each of these cells is you know, loads of little lipid droplets. If you fracture the cell wall, which happens when you chew nuts or when you ground nuts, you release some of that lipid. But because the cells are so tiny, if you think of when you chew a nut, or even if you ground it into um, a nut butter, you're still leaving thousands and thousands of intact little balls um, with their intact um, you know, rigid structure that just passes through the gastrointestinal tract gets to your large colon, is there to provide a beautiful fodder for your microbiome to feed on, as well as um, uh, you know, reducing the calorie content or energy content of the food significantly. And it tastes bloody good. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. And, you know, I often finish my talks by being asked, you know, what's your top top tip? And my top tip on that note is food is there to be enjoyed. And so if you enjoy your nut butter, well, the fact that it's um, reasonably healthy is great. Good. Well, I'm glad you've made me feel a lot better about <laughs> my, my addiction now. Um, I've got one more question for you before we go on to the, the three questions which I ask everyone that comes on the show. And I know we've, we're running out of time, so we'll do these quick That's fire fine. if you want. Um, for the people that are listening, like there'll be nutritionists, doctors, people interested in improving their own health. It becomes very apparent that nutrition is a minefield, and especially for the general public. And it only seems to be getting more complicated, although your research has come on, well, it seems leaps and bounds. What can we expect to emerge in the near future? And what do you think the practical applications will be of the work that you're currently doing? Okay, well... Um, it's a tricky one. I think you make a really important point that there's so much miscommunication and it is a total minefield. Um, I think part of the problem with that is because we are coming on leaps and bounds. So things are progressing very rapidly in research. I think what we're going to start to see more and more of is an emphasis on thinking 
moving beyond, like I said, on uh, looking at nutrients and looking holistically at the diet in relation to other determinants. So we've talked about this before, but thinking about dietary habits as well as diet quality. So thinking about what we eat as well alongside with, you know, how we're eating it and what else we're doing in our lifestyle. And I think the areas that are going to emerge more and more are around things like time of day, meal sequencing. Now that makes it difficult from a practical point of view. And particularly, you know, when you're trying to give quite general board advice and you don't have the ability to necessarily uh, go into great depths at a consultation or have various devices to measure at an individual level. And I think from a practical point of view, I don't know really. <laughs> well, I find yeah, I, I, we might need to well, know more. That's the thing. It might be like further down the line where we will actually get the practical applications of this. I mean, what's the product that the Zoe is in the US? So um, Zoe have launched a product in the US uh, earlier last year, and they're launching one, uh, the same product in the UK later this year. This is a personalized nutrition product. It consists of a testing phase where people uh, provide stool samples for metagenomic microbiome sequencing. They uh, monitor their blood glucose responses using continuous glucose monitors. They uh, finger prick, uh, they prick their finger to uh, do dry blood spots so that we can look at blood lipid responses. They consume our standardized muffins, which we use as a way of testing people's responses to standardized meals and they undertake mini protocols so we can look at the effect of timing and exercise and all of these sorts of things on their metabolic uh, responses. All of this data then comes back to the Zoe team um, and they use this on to guide individuals on what foods are best to consume for their own unique biology. And this advice is based on a series of studies that we've already conducted, the PREDICT-1 and the PREDICT-2 study, from which we've been able to look at the different determinants, look at their relative impact mm -hmm. and build these prediction algorithms. And so it's a very uh, in-depth, personalized diet and nutrition product at an individual level. And I think that it's really exciting because also people that are taking part in this take part in um, citizen science where we also collect these results and we can refine our prediction albums and we can start to look at actually what really matters. And so from a practical point of view for people that don't have access to this, in the future, what we hope is that we will be able to generate enough information, enough science from this to really guide people on some very solid, basic principles that we know to be important. And it might be that in the future, we realize that um, we can still deliver this at a broader population level, but by just looking at a few variables. So we might be able to see, for example, if we look at your microbiome along with measuring this particular parameter in your blood, that will give us enough of an idea of your personalized uh, response to different foods. That's hugely fascinating. And it sounds extremely robust, the kind of test that you're doing. Um, I've never heard of anything like that before in terms of a product. I know people are doing microbiome testing, DNA testing, uh, but not nothing like that. Um, especially with the CGM, that seems quite unique. Um, continuous yeah. glucose monitor, that's what I mean by CGM. Yeah, I think that's what makes it exciting in the way that I've got really excited about the fact that we're looking at so many different parameters as part of the PREDICT study. That's what's also happening at Zoe with the Zoe product is that all of the different factors, we're not just looking at microbiome, we're just looking at the glucose responses. We're looking at all of these together because we know that they're interrelated and we know that it's important to consider all of these. Brilliant. I'm quite excited to do it. <laughs> So there you go. Uh, we, we can get you a kit for when we arrive in the UK, when uh, Zoe launches in the UK. That would be amazing. That would actually be And then be you, can do, you can do an episode on your results. I, w <laughs> I genuinely would. It'd be interesting, unless they came out and they were really bad, and then I'd feel embarrassed. <laughs> I mean, something which I have like a, um, a very good HbA1c, and it's quite low, 
Um, but I feel like my blood glucose spikes. I've, ne I've never worn a CGM, but I feel it spikes after the weirdest foods. Like I can't tolerate orange juice um, very much. And I don't know why that is, but I would be, uh, like something like that, wearing a CGM, um, I think it'd be fascinating to see what happens. It is, it is fascinating because we see that one person could, like you could have orange juice and have a massive spike, a massive dip, but someone else who could be your identical twin or, or mm. an unrelated individual can have a totally different response. And that's really fascinating. We recently published some research looking also at the dips in glucose responses and looking at how just how variable people's responses are, not just in their traditionally measured glycemic response, which is the peak, but also in who gets a dip in glycemic responses and who doesn't. Mm. And this is fascinating because our work has shown that people's glucose dip. So this is the dip below baseline um, around two to four hours after consuming a meal is actually more predictive of your hunger, your energy intake, your alertness, etc. after a meal uh, than actually your peak. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. What, what I found, um, yeah, because I can't seem to, if I eat carbohydrates, like a, a bolus of carbohydrates in the morning, like porridge. I mean, this is going way off topic now. And I'll get back to these three questions and we can do them quick fire. Do you need to go soon, by the way? It's on the same out of here by 10 past. Cool. I'll, I'll just quickly mention this because I'm it's like, fine. I'm on a rant now. You've got my brain going. Um, if I eat carbohydrates in the morning, I will genuinely have to eat probably every three to four hours. Like I will feel hungry, um, which suggests I'm not really tolerating carbohydrates very well. But then sometimes, but then if I eat something which is a low carbohydrate breakfast, I can tolerate carbohydrates for lunch. Um, I don't, I'd love to know what was going on there. Or maybe it's the carbohydrates I'm choosing. So maybe it's the fruits because we talked about orange juice. Maybe it's fructose. I don't know. But yeah, the, the, the point is like Zoe, something comprehensive like that where you can unpick exactly what's going on. Yeah. I think would be fascinating because I can't, I mean, I go through elimination diets and do all kinds of things with my diet just because I'm fascinated in what's going on and how to optimize my performance, whether it be in the gym or whether it be like cognitive wise. Um, but I can't get to the core reason why sometimes I just, I can't control my hunger if I have a, a carbohydrate bolus. Cause if that, that's, what's wonderful by, uh, you know, by being able to wear a, a CGM as well as all the other measures that mm. are part of the Zoe uh, plan is that, you can look at what's causing a spike, what's causing a dip. How is it the food or is it because I did a bit of exercise at this time before, this time after, et cetera. And, you know, so it kind of gives the power back to you to take control of what you're eating and how you're eating it in order to ensure you're not getting those spikes, which ultimately lead to the dip, which ultimately leads you to why you're hungry three or four hours later and reaching for more food. Mm. Mm. Fascinating. Okay. I'm sharing a lot now. Okay, I'll ask you the three questions, <laughs> the, the final three questions, and then you can pick up your kids. Um, so what is the most impactful health change that you have made in your life and why? I've never really thought much about my health and I've never really thought much about what I eat, which might sound a bit crazy considering I'm a nutritionist. Um, but about Three years ago, I turned 40 and I suddenly thought, actually, I better start looking after my health. So I started jogging um, and I, I would say that's the single most impactful change I've made. It's given me more energy. It's also made me think a bit more actually about what I eat, how much alcohol I'm having, those sorts of things, you know, because you feel it when you jog the next day. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that for sure. Um, and the second one is how can healthcare and healthcare guidelines, sorry, become more integrated with the kind of modalities that we've spoken about today. And I guess in this case, how can healthcare guidelines integrate some of the work that you're doing? Yeah, I think this is a tricky one. I do think, as I mentioned earlier, that there is a place for personalized advice within all population guidelines. And I think integration of the two is really important. It does take time, like I said before, for practitioners really to tailor advice at an individual level. And I know that additional information is required to give that tailored advice. But what I really hope is that one day through the kind of findings that we have, we'll have the knowledge and understanding to know which are the key uh, factors that we need to uh, modify to be able to tailor it at an individual level. Okay, brilliant. 
And before I, la- I ask you the, the last question, can you please tell the, nis- the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects you have coming up? So you can follow my latest thinking on latest nutrition news uh, on my Twitter page, which is Sarah E.E. E. Berry. Uh, you can also find details of my latest publications and research on my KCL web pages. And in terms of new exciting research, we have a gold mine of data from the PREDICT studies. So we are continuously publishing the kind of work that's going to be coming out in the next six months and manuscripts that we have on inflammation, on sleep, on time of day, on different metrics of glycemic responses, such as time and range and glycemic variability, as well as a whole load more. Thank you. And I'll put all the links for the listeners in the show notes. And finally, can you please provide the listeners with three quick tips to help improve their health and well-being from today? Move more is my one of my tips. Uh, two, uh, to consume a variety of food and where possible food in its original matrix. So unprocessed foods. And three, something I feel really passionate about, enjoy your food. Food is a social, cultural, emotional uh, event. And if there's no pleasure in the food that you're consuming, I think that makes any health benefit from it devoid. Brilliant. Love it. Sarah, this has been amazing. You've been amazing. I've, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. And I do hope that we can do this again soon. Fabulous. I'd love to. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or our website, and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for all the editing, and thank you all for your support.